Chapter One of George Washington. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. George Washington by Callista McCabe Courtney. Chapter One Washington's Early Life, Appointed as Surveyor, First Trip into the Wilderness, Entrusted with Message to the French, 1732 to 1754. The twenty-second day of February is a national holiday in America because, as every one knows, it is the anniversary of George Washington's birthday. All loyal Americans love and honor him, the greatest man in the history of the Republic. He was born in 1732 in Westmoreland County, Virginia, where the Potomac River flowed past his father's farm. The farmhouse, called Wakefield, was burned, but the United States government built a monument to mark the place where it stood. When Wakefield was destroyed, the family lived for a time in a home, later called Mount Vernon, in Fairfax County. But the real boyhood home of George Washington was a farm overlooking the Rappahannock River, where his parents went when he was about eight years old. His father, Augustine Washington, was a prosperous Virginia planter, and owned several fine estates. His mother's name was Mary Ball. She was a beautiful and sensible woman, and a wise, firm, and loving mother. She was his father's second wife, and there were two little lads already in the home, Lawrence and Augustine, when she came to take the place of their mother who had died. Besides these two half-brothers, George had two sisters and three brothers. The two older sons were sent to England to school. When George was eight years old, Lawrence returned home, having finished his studies. A great affection at once sprang up between them. George was a fine, manly little fellow, whom any big brother could love and he looked up to Lawrence as a model. Before long, Lawrence went away to the wars, serving under Admiral Vernon in the West Indies. His letters filled George with admiration, and he at once became commander-in-chief of all the boys at school. They had parades and battles in imitation of those Lawrence wrote about. George's father died when he was twelve years old, but fortunately he had a wise and careful mother. She taught him respect and obedience to authority justice and courtesy to others, loyalty to God and his country. He had a high temper and a spirit of command which she taught him to control. A few times only in his life, when greatly provoked, did his anger get beyond bounds. He loved and honored his mother deeply, and never forgot her teachings. George and his younger brothers were educated in the country schools of Virginia. George soon showed that he had a practical mind, caring little for poetry and literature. He liked mathematics, and wanted to know about business and keeping accounts. He spent hours copying into a book the exact forms of legal papers of all kinds. He was very neat and accurate in his schoolwork, and learned the value of system and order. He never began a thing without finishing it. He never did anything without knowing the reason why. When he grew up, these fine principles and this skill and accuracy fitted him to take a great part in the history of America. All boys in those early days knew how to handle guns and manage horses. George was an expert rider, and loved the life of the woods. Being exceptionally tall and strong, he was the champion athlete at school. It is said he could throw a stone farther than any man in Virginia. Besides, he was so fair-minded that the boys always let him settle their disputes and quarrels, knowing he would give every one a square deal. He was the admired and trusted leader of them all. 
In addition to his mother's care, George soon had the loving advice and devoted friendship of his brother Lawrence. The war was over, and that splendid young gentleman had come home, and had married the charming Anne Fairfax. His house, willed to him by his father, stood upon a hill overlooking the beautiful Potomac River. To this lovely home, surrounded by lawns and stately trees, Lawrence gave the name Mount Vernon, in honor of the admiral under whom he had served. George spent as much time as possible here, where he met many persons of education and refinement. While he was still a young boy, he wrote out for himself a long list of rules of politeness and good behavior. He had observed that older people do not like careless children, who forget the comforts and rights of others. As a result, he was well liked by his brother's friends. Among them were often military and naval officers, who told him stories of war and adventure in foreign lands. When he was fourteen, one of these officers would have appointed him midshipman in the British Navy. He was eager to go, but his mother needed his help in the management of their property, so he continued two years more at school, studying mathematics, engineering, and surveying. The country was then new and wild, and there was much work for land surveyors, whose business it was to measure off boundaries and describe the positions of rivers, mountains, and forests in a piece of land. George learned to do this so well that by the time he was sixteen he was appointed public surveyor of his county. His chief work for the next three years was on the vast tracts of land owned by Lord Fairfax, the uncle of Lawrence Washington's wife. Though very young, George was a great favorite with his lordship, who often took him fox-hunting. George was a bold and skillful horseman, and rode well after the hounds. The estate of Lord Fairfax, lying between the Potomac and the Rappahannock rivers, and extending to the Allegheny Mountains, had been given to his grandfather by King Charles the Second. These lands had never been settled nor surveyed. People known as squatters were now moving in and taking possession of the best places, without permission. It became necessary to have the land surveyed, and these settlers either driven out or made to pay for certain definite parts. Lord Fairfax knew no one who could do this so well as George Washington, for he was strong and fair enough to deal wisely with the rough settlers. It was just what George wanted to do, and he gladly accepted the offer. In March George set out for his first trip into the wilderness. He was just sixteen years old, and it was his first big undertaking. George Fairfax, Anne's brother, went with him. They crossed the mountains into the lovely valley of the Shenandoah River. George's letters home were full of the beauty of the country and the richness of the land. After the first night they found it more comfortable to sleep out under the sky than in the poor untidy lodgings of the settlers. They lived on wild turkey and other game. They did their own cooking, roasting the meat on sticks over the fire and eating it on broad, clean chips. They met a party of war-painted Indians, and for the first time George saw an Indian war-dance. He studied the Indians carefully, for he wanted to understand their ways so that he might know how to deal with them. All through his life he was kind and just in his treatment of these people. The work of surveying tracts of land took them long distances, among the mountains and through the valleys. They travelled on horseback over the woodland trails, for there were as yet no roads. Sometimes they found the rivers so high that they crossed in canoes, their horses swimming. George returned in a month well pleased with his adventures, and Lord Fairfax, delighted with his success, paid him well. The cordial, friendly, free life of Virginia pleased Lord Fairfax more than did the life in England. When he heard the account of the fertility and beauty of the Shenandoah Valley, 
He decided to make his home there. George laid out for him a fine farm of ten thousand acres. The long stone farmhouse, surrounded by servants' quarters, stables, and kennels, was located on a charming hillside. The place was called Greenway Court, and visitors always found a warm welcome, whether Indians, woodsmen, or friends from the cities. Here George stayed when on his surveying trips and during the hunting seasons. Until he was nineteen, George spent his time at his work, or at home with his mother, or at Mount Vernon with Lawrence. The society of his home and friends kept him from being spoiled by the roughness of the wilderness. He was now six feet two inches in height, with a fresh outdoor complexion, blue eyes, and brown hair. He had attractive manners, he was careful about his dress, and presented a pleasing appearance. Through all his life George Washington was a true gentleman. He was so well paid for his work that he was able to buy several pieces of fine land. His noble character gave him a high place among the leading men of his colony. When he was nineteen he was appointed one of four military officers in the colonies, with the rank and pay of a major, seven hundred fifty dollars a year, a considerable sum at that time. Troubles had now arisen between the French and the English about the ownership of lands west of the Allegheny Mountains. The Indians, regarding the lands as theirs, took part in the disturbance. To protect her frontiers, Virginia was divided into four districts, each under a leader, whose duty it was to organize and drill militia. George at once began to study military tactics, and the arts of war. This was interrupted by a trip to the West Indies with his beloved brother Lawrence, who was ill of consumption. They had hardly arrived there when George had a severe attack of smallpox. Though he soon got well, his face was scarred for life. He wrote home about the beauty of the island, the wonderful trees and fruits, and his social pleasures, dinners, parties, and drives. For the first time in his life he attended a theatre. He visited the courts of justice and the fortifications, studied the laws, the soil, and the crops, learning all that could be learned about the island. The trip resulted in no lasting good for Lawrence, however, for he died the following summer, beloved and honored by the colonists. George was only twenty, but Lawrence left Mount Vernon in his charge, and the care of his wife and little daughter. The farm on the Rappahannock had been given to George by their father. These two fine estates, with the property he had bought for himself, made George a large landowner when still a very young man. The care of all this property and his military duties kept him busy. During this time the trouble with the French had grown more serious. The English, having settled the eastern sea-coast, claimed the lands to the west for their settlers. The French claimed the same lands by reason of having explored them first. The rich country lying west of the Allegheny Mountains, between the Great Lakes and the Ohio River, was the region in question. The French were planning to hold it by a line of forts from the lakes to the Gulf of Mexico and near the eastern end of Lake Erie they had built two forts. Governor Robert Dinwiddie, of Virginia, decided to send a message to the French commandant, St. Pierre, warning him to keep off English soil. He needed someone brave and strong enough to travel in the winter, through hundreds and hundreds of miles of forests and across mountains and swift rivers, who knew how to take care of himself in the woods, who could get along with the Indians, and meet the French officers with courtesy and wisdom. Of all the men in Virginia, the governor chose George Washington, only twenty-one years old, for this dangerous and important journey. So, late in the autumn of 1753, Major Washington set out for the Ohio River, accompanied by Christopher Gist, a brave and daring frontiersman, 
and an Indian chief called Half-King, as guides, together with interpreters and a small company of trusted men. They travelled on horseback, and took with them tents and supplies for the journey. As they proceeded, cold weather overtook them, and the forests became almost impassable from snow. Travelling was so difficult that when they reached the Monongahela River they sent two men down the river in a canoe with their baggage. These men waited for them at the fork where the Allegheny River joins the Monongahela to form the Ohio. As soon as Washington saw this fork, he marked it as a splendid location for a fort, of which we shall learn more later. Pushing on a little farther, Washington and his men reached a little settlement on the Ohio River where Indian chiefs met him in council. He told them he had a letter for the French commandant, and asked for their advice and help. Indians are very dignified, and slow in their counsels. They kept Washington waiting for several days. Then three of the greatest chiefs went with him to the French forts. These were in what is now northwestern Pennsylvania. It was a journey of many miles, through snow and mud, and took nearly a week. It was almost the middle of December before Washington delivered his message to the French commandant, St. Pierre. He was politely received by the French officers, with whom he discussed matters very tactfully. It took some days to prepare the reply to the Governor of Virginia. While they waited, the French tried, with presents and liquor, to coax Washington's Indian friends to leave him. At this time the Indian tribes were in a difficult position. Both the French and the English were trying to get their lands, and each seeking to win their alliance against the other. Washington reminded the chiefs that he had their word of honor and so kept them with him. After receiving the French reply, the party started back home, going as far as possible in canoes. The rivers were swollen and full of ice, making the water trip extremely dangerous. On Christmas Day Washington began his long journey home, nearly a thousand miles through almost trackless forests. The horses became so tired that he and Christopher Gist decided to hurry on foot in advance of the others, to the fork of the Ohio, leaving their horses to be brought later. They tramped several days, camping in the forests at night. An Indian met them and offered to show them a shortcut, but he was treacherous and guided them out of their way, and tried to shoot them. They escaped, travelling as fast as they could all night and all the next day. At nightfall they came to the Allegheny River, expecting to find it frozen over, but it was full of floating ice and they had no way to cross. After working a whole day with only a small hatchet, they made a raft. In trying to pole this across the swift current, Washington was thrown into the water and was nearly drowned, but he managed to get on the raft again, and they reached an island, where they spent the night. It was so intensely cold that Gist's hands and feet were frozen. The next morning they got ashore on the chunks of ice, and by supper-time were in the warm house of a trader named Fraser. In a few days they were rested enough to go on to Gist's home, where the Major bade his companion good-bye, and went on alone on horseback, through constant snows and bitter cold. On the 16th of January, 1754, Major Washington delivered the French reply to Governor Dinwiddie. He had been absent almost three months on his perilous journey, and you can imagine that his mother and friends were glad to see him safe at home again. The governor and the colonists were very proud of the way Washington had performed his errand. His wisdom in his dealings with the Indians and the French, his firmness, his courage and daring in the face of peril, had indeed been marked. He had not only done well what he had been sent to do, but he had thoroughly examined the French forts, 
and made notes of the best places for English defences. From that time he was trusted with important duties. As might have been expected, the reply from the French commandant stated that the land belonged to French settlers, and that they intended to keep it. It was Washington's opinion that the French intended in the spring to take possession of the whole country. The governor of Virginia tried to interest other colonies to help fight the French. When they refused, Virginia sent Captain Trent to raise a company of men in the western country, and to build a fort at the fork of the Ohio River, where the city of Pittsburgh now stands. Washington, now Colonel, was ordered to raise three hundred men and build a road to this fort for cannon and supplies. He succeeded in getting together one hundred and fifty men, who were poorly equipped and without training. They built the road as far as Cumberland. Here, in April 1754, they met Captain Trent's men in retreat. A French force of three hundred men had surprised them by suddenly paddling down the river in canoes, and planting their guns before the fort, with a summons to surrender in an hour. One young officer and fifteen men could not hold out against so many. So they surrendered and marched back over the mountains. Every day traders and settlers came by, hurrying eastward. They said the French had taken the place at the fork of the Ohio, and were building a strong fort. They were coaxing the Indians with fine presents to fight the English. If the British were to succeed against the French, they required a good road over which to march an army. So Colonel Washington hurried the road-building as much as possible, but at best he could make only slow progress in such mountainous country. He received a message from the friendly chief Half-King, telling him that a French force was on its way to attack him. With a little band of men Washington made his way at night through the forest, in a heavy rain, to the camp of Half-King. Indian scouts tracked the Frenchmen to a forest near a place called Great Meadows, where in May Washington and his men attacked them on one side, and Indians on the other. The Colonel was in the thickest of the fight, and, for the first time, heard bullets whistling about his head. Ten Frenchmen were killed, and twenty-one taken prisoners. Half-King sent the scalps of the dead men, with tomahawks and strings of black wampum—small beads made of shells and sometimes used by the Indians as money—to all his allies, and asked them to join the English. This was Washington's first skirmish, and it opened the French and Indian War that lasted seven years. Washington now encamped at Great Meadows, where he dug rude trenches, which he called Fort Necessity. Supplies of food and ammunition were slow in reaching him. He had been reinforced with troops from the command of Colonel Fry, who had died on the way, and Washington was now made commander of the joint forces of about three hundred men. The French finished their fort, which they called Duquesne. Then about nine hundred French and Indians attacked Washington. The English fought bravely, but Half-King and his men deserted Washington. Being greatly outnumbered, he was obliged to surrender. Colonel Washington led his beaten and discouraged men home, trying to cheer them while sharing their hardships. The campaign, fought against such odds, had not been successful, but Washington was publicly thanked for his bravery and hard work. He resigned his commission and went to look after his mother's affairs. He soon settled at Mount Vernon and began to work on his farm. His greatest desire was to devote himself to country life, but he was needed too much by the colony to be allowed to live as a private man. End of chapter 1 Recording by Bill Borst